the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the message of the Bible summarized in this statement is clear. God saves sinners through His Son. And the promise of the Bible is very simple. Through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, sinners like us are are instantaneously, eternally, and immutably justified. That is, declared righteous in God's sight. Through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, sinners are instantaneously, eternally, and immutably justified, declared righteous in God's sight. And that happens because through faith, the perfect obedience of the man Jesus is imputed to us. And with His righteousness then, Dumped into our account, God is just even as He justifies, declares righteous those of us who are by all other accounts ungodly. Because it's not based upon who we are or what we've done. It's based upon who Christ is and what Christ has done. Now the reality is, and we all know this to be true, that in our flesh, we still sin. To be justified is to be declared righteous. Not made righteous, we still sin. A Christian, while truly justified by God and in God's sight, is still liable to many types and kinds of sin... And a Christian still lives in a world where evil surrounds him. It seems at every turn there is an opportunity for us to take hold of and and be engulfed in evil. That's the world we live in. Our, Our great high priest even prayed to his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. We're still sinners. We still live in a world that is full of sin. And what that means for the church is that a Christian church, while it is certainly a place of conglomerated grace, grace working in each of us, piled all together in an assembly, it is also a place of a conglomeration of sin and sinners. A Christian church is a gathering of people redeemed by Christ's blood and yet liable to sin vulnerable to the temptations to sin, living in a world full of evils. And as we've seen in the Corinthian church, or as we've seen the Corinthian church, was a monument to that sad reality, that sad truth. There was sin in the church. While that saddens us, we should be sad any time we hear of sin being prevalent in a church, it saddens us. But in many cases, it's not surprising because we're still sinners. 
The difference between a gathering of believers and that of unbelievers is not that sin is present in one gathering and it's not present in the other gathering. The difference is the great confidence that ought to be found among believers that by God's powerful grace among us, we will be trying to and able to turn from our sin and endeavor after obedience. Where there are Christians, there's repentance from sin, not the utter absence of sin. And the Corinthians had proved this well. The problem in Corinth was not that there was sin and sinners in the church, but that the church had not been dealing with the sin and the sinners. They were not using the riches of grace and power that the Lord of the church had given them. And so Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the messenger of Christ, has written to them to help them correct their problems. And this is one of the great glories of Christ, that He is the prophet of God. And not just the prophet of God, but as, as the saints individually and as the church corporately, He is our prophet. We get to own Him as our prophet. The Mohammedans have Muhammad. He's their prophet. Who do we have? We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as our prophet. And having Him as our prophet means that He doesn't leave us in ignorance. He doesn't leave us in our sin, but He comes to declare the truth to us. And that's what He's done here for the Corinthians in this epistle. He sent His apostle as a messenger to carry the word of the great prophet, the Word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus. Now, as I mentioned last Lord's Day, as we come to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, we come to a great transition in the letter. The apostle is now going to shift gears and move from addressing the things that had come to him by the report of Chloe's people to answering questions and concerns that had been written to him from the Corinthians themselves. They had written a letter and they had mentioned some things, had questions and topics of concern and he's now going to begin to address that stuff. And so as you can tell, as we just read the chapter, 1 Corinthians 7 deals almost exclusively with questions surrounding the topic of marriage and how Christians at various life stages or places in life should think about the subject of marriage. Now what I want to do today is first give a brief flyover of the chapter. We're just going to zip over the top of it, just sort of see what's happening. And then I want to give a, a, another overview, general introduction to the concept of marriage from a biblical perspective. Because this chapter covers so many subjects in sort of rapid-fire succession and, and so many different types of people, it's helpful for us from the start to just get a lay of the land. What, what is he doing? Where is, where is he going with all this? In, in addition to what we're going to do now, I would even recommend, if, if, you, if you're able, to come back to this chapter and read it and reread it, just the whole thing multiple times, so that you can sort of see how he's moving from group to group. That would be for your own sake. Now, the first thing that we see in the chapter is this statement. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters 
about which you wrote. So Paul tells us from the start what he's doing. He's addressing their concerns. <coughs> or he's, he's answering their questions. <clears throat> he's, the topics that he addresses are topics that they had mentioned. Their concerns, and we don't have their letter, but if we had their letter, we could see how their concerns, their letter, guide him in what he says. Now, as we move through the chapter, Paul addresses seven different issues related to marriage and at least four different categories of people. And I want to show you these. In verses 1 through 7, Paul addresses sexual intimacy in marriage in light of the subject of celibacy. Notice what he says. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and if you have the ESV, you have a colon, and then the next statement is in quotation marks, uh, alluding to the, the interpretation that this phrase is something that they had said or were saying or, or thinking in their letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then he is responding to that, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. They had written, he responds. More than likely, their thinking, and this was, was common and has been common and is still common in our day, sadly, they were thinking that sexual uh, intimacy in marriage was not a good idea. That it's actually a, a, a better, a more profitable, a more spiritual way of life to remain celibate. The text literally reads, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So he's addressing that. All right, in verses 8 and 9, he speaks to widowers and widows in light of that same subject, celibacy. Look at verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. The word single is not in the text. It is good for them to remain as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Now, there's good reason to believe that when Paul uses that word, to the unmarried, to take that as a reference to widowers, men whose wives had died. And when we get to this passage, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll explain to you why that, that is probably who he's referring to. But you can tell that he's still thinking in terms of that idea of sexual intimacy and the question of celibacy. What if my spouse has died? Well, I'm, I'm more holy if I just remain uh, single. Well, he's saying, well, there, there are other, other things to take into consideration. Widowers and widows in light of the subject of celibacy. In verses 10 and 11, he addresses married Christians and the subject of divorce. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And then verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Just a general statement on the matter. It seems probably setting the stage for the next thing that he says in verses 12 to 16, where he addresses a Christian who's married to a non-Christian. Look at verse 12. To the rest I say, so you got Christians who are in a, in a marriage where they're both Christians, 
How should they live? And then to the rest of you who are a Christian but married to an unbeliever, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he gives counsel to those in that situation. So if, if you're following, he, after giving that general rule for Christian couples, wives don't leave your husbands, husbands don't leave your wives, for the rest of you who are married to an unbeliever, and then he gives counsel to them, how should they think about their situation? In verses 17 to 24, he speaks to what we could call contentment or steadfastness. This is probably the central issue of the chapter because it's almost literally central in the chapter. He says in verse 17, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Again, this is probably the primary message that he's trying to get across to them. It seems like the Corinthians were expecting that their Christianity was requiring some changes that it didn't really require. They were thinking, and here's the irony, we're Christians, so we're allowed to divide up into groups and quarrel with one another. We're allowed to downplay the work of the apostle. We're allowed to take one another to court. We're allowed to have a, a sexually immoral man among us. But they were also thinking, oh, we're Christians, so we're really spiritual now, so we, we shouldn't touch our spouses, or we shouldn't be married at all, or we should leave our spouses so that we can be more spiritual. The... the, the the, the immaturity of, or the irony of the immaturity is, is very clear. But that's probably what they were thinking. We're, we're holy now. We ought to live that, that monastic and separated single life. So he addresses that thinking. In verses 25 to 38, he addresses people who have never yet been married and, and speaks to how they should think about the subject of marriage. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, or the word is actually the virgins, that is those who have never been married. And that's important to keep that in mind, who he's addressing here. One example of why, why we need to keep that in, import, or in our minds is in verse 28, he says, if you do marry, you have not sinned. Well, if we just take that snippet out of its context and apply it to some of these other situations, it would not be a true statement. It is not always true that if you get married, it's no sin. There are situations where if you get married, it's sinful. That's just an illustration. He's talking to people who've never been married. He says, if you do marry, you've not sinned. Then in verses 39 and 40, he speaks to Christian widows about the subject of remarriage, verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married. And he tells her what kind of man she should look for. And I, I do think it's safe to expect that statement to apply out beyond widows to widowers as well, men and women, who, are, who have lost a spouse to death. You are allowed to be remarried, but you've got to marry a Christian. So he addresses in this chapter married Christians, widowed Christians, Christians who are married to non-Christians, and Christians who have yet to be married. Four different groups of people. Now, from these facts alone, we can begin to draw out some applications from and for this chapter. 
The first is this. Very important. Paul is not trying to be exhaustive in this chapter. He's not getting, giving us a full theology of Christian marriage. So it would be wrong for us to come here to get all of our data about marriage from a biblical perspective or to try to force our thinking into uh, this chapter or to force different circumstances into this chapter that Paul's not, not addressing. That would be wrong. He's not seeking to be exhaustive. Remember, their letter is guiding him. He's answering their issues. It's not exhaustive, so don't try to make it exhaustive. Number two, because number one is true, we need to keep the different subjects separate. Keep the different subjects separate. That's clearly what Paul does. He lets us know each time who, who he's talking to now. And, and the situation that he's describing. One writer on this chapter puts it this way, quote, If these well-marked changes in subject matter are overlooked when interpreting the various parts of this chapter, it's easy to forget that Paul has switched from one topic to another. Failure to note these divisions could cause the reader to interpret Paul's words as if he were still addressing one of his former topics. So when he says to the betrothed or to the virgins, to those not yet or have never been married... He's no longer talking to people who are married. He's talking to different people. So we've got to keep those separate. The third thing that we learn here or are reminded of is that the church is usually made up of people at various stages of life. The Bible does not know of churches for the elderly or churches for the young. According to Scripture, from the Bible, we would never find the idea of adult church or children's church. As a matter of fact, I think we could, would take from Scripture that a church that is geared at or driven by or trying to cater to the whims of young people is in a lot of trouble. Just like if your house, if your kids are making all of the decisions or if you're making the decisions but they're all guided by we've got to make sure the kids are happy, well, you're in trouble. You've, you've, you've lost the reins at that point because the young are not to be in charge. In a typical church, you're going to find people who are not yet married, people who are married, older people who've perhaps been widowed, people who were married as Christians and people who were married as non-Christians and now they're trying to learn how to be married now that they've been converted. Maybe one spouse has and the other hasn't. And we should expect that in a church. We should recognize that the ministry of a church has to be able to serve all of these kinds of people because the Word of God addresses all of these kinds of people. Now, that doesn't mean what a lot of people mean when they say things like, meet them where they are, or we got to meet them where they're at. A lot of times what that means is, alter your doctrine, alter your practice, lower your moral standards for the sake of the unconverted or the ignorant. That's not biblical. We, we, we don't do that. We, we take the Word of God and apply it to people in order to see the Spirit of God bring them from where they are to where you would have them to be. But we don't lower or, or set aside biblical standards for the sake of those who are, again, unconverted or ignorant. Again, going back to the 
the way this happens in churches. And you can actually see the foolishness of it if you think about it. Let's take, for example, a church that has a uh, traditional service and a contemporary service. Why do they do that? Well, they do that because the young people put up enough fuss and because they're immature and that's what they do. And the older people, because they're older and more mature and gracious and they just desire to see the young people grow, they will give in. Okay, we'll let them have that. But if the tables were turned, you would, you would almost never hear the young people saying, you know what, we love, we love the gray hairs, we love the white-headed people, we want to honor them, we want to be respectful. And so we will submit our immature, unlearned, unthought-out presuppositions and desires to them because they're older and more mature and we should probably just keep our mouths shut. You, you never hear that, right? It's always the older people who have to cater to the young. That's, that's backwards. The Word of God doesn't do that. The Word of God addresses everyone, but it still requires us to maintain standards of, of practice because a church is made up of all types and kinds of people. Number four, becoming a Christian, we see in this chapter, does not erase all of our problems. Being a Christian doesn't mean all of your problems go away. These people, the Corinthians, were as far as we can tell true believers, and yet they were confused about many different matters just in the realm of of marriage. Just this one topic, we're finding out there were a lot of problems or or questions or concerns. Christianity doesn't make marriage problems go away. And we need to make sure that the gospel that we are preaching cannot be misconstrued to sound like we're offering men and women a fix-all pill for their marriage problems or whatever other kind of problems they might be having. The problems in this world are going to continue and a Christian will be sanctified through their problems. A Christian has Christ to turn to in the midst of sorrow and strife. The Christian message is not, come to Jesus, your marriage problems will go away, your financial problems will go away, your work problems will go away, your political views will be settled and clear, and, and, and life will, the, the, the red carpet of life will just roll out right in front of you. That's not the Christian message. The Christian message is, come to Jesus Christ, and He will purge you of your sins so that you can have fellowship with God. So that as the the red carpet is not rolled out in front of you, whatever the problems might be, you've got God. You've got God. But being a Christian does not erase all of our problems. Another thing that we learn just from a, a, a sweeping overview of this chapter is that grace does not destroy nature. If it's true that verses 17 to 24, that that where he's dealing with contentment or steadfastness, remaining as you are, if that is the, the, the primary message he's trying to get across to them, which I think it, it is, then we're reminded in this chapter that saving grace does not utterly destroy or erase our nature as men and women. Saving grace does not utterly destroy or erase our nature as men and women. It seems like, again, that the Corinthians had this idea that their newfound religion, Christianity, now required them to fight against the basic elements of their humanity, like marriage and sexual intimacy. And so they had ideas like, well, being a Christian requires me to be celibate, or being a Christian means I'm no longer a slave to my master, or being a Christian means I have to leave my unbelieving spouse because they're not a Christian and I am. That's not true. 
marriage and issues like it, which are rooted in our nature as human beings, they stay, they, they remain regardless of our state in grace. Grace does not come to obliterate all of that. Grace doesn't mean that a man is not a man and a woman is not a woman. Grace does not mean that we now reject marriage and family and, and work and things like that in the world. Rather, the grace of God reorients our thinking so that in these areas which are fundamental to our human nature, we are capable of functioning according to God's design rather than according to our old corrupt nature and sin. That's probably Paul's main idea here. Now with that in mind, moving into the, the second thing that I want to do is just give a biblical overview of marriage. Remember, Paul's not being exhaustive in this chapter. There's a lot that Paul assumes that he doesn't say. He's trying to get the Corinthians to see that previous point, grace does not erase nature. We could call this a sort of Christian axiom that, that has been oft repeated by many different men. Because it needs to be repeated in the, in the sphere of, of the church in general, broadly. You've got men like Thomas Aquinas who said grace does not destroy nature but perfects it. St. Bonaventure, grace is the perfection of nature, not only as so far as it equips nature, but also in as far as it both reforms and elevates it. But in reforming and elevating it, grace does not destroy nature itself nor any part thereof, but only the defects surrounding it. Now, we probably don't have very many books on our shelves from Aquinas or Bonaventure, but another uh, uh, moving into names that are more familiar to us, Stephen Charnock says, grace does not destroy nature, but elevates it. Francis Turretin, so grace does not destroy nature, but makes it perfect. Nor does the supernatural revelation abrogate the natural, but makes it pure. And in a, in a more specific and maybe salvific way of stating the same thing, Herman Bovink says, Regeneration does not erase individuality, personality, or character, but sanctifies it and puts it at the service of God's name. Grace does not destroy nature. Grace does not mean that a man is not a man or a woman is not a woman. Grace does not cause us to reject marriage, family, or work. Grace does not destroy nature. It perfects it. But what does that idea assume? What is assumed when we say grace does not destroy nature? Well, it assumes nature, that there is a way God made men to be. It assumes grace... The, the saving and transforming power of God. But it also assumes a need for grace upon the human nature. It assumes the fall of man into sin. <clears throat> to say grace does not destroy nature assumes the creation of man, the fall of man, and the redemption of man. And Paul is assuming that general flow of redemption as he... As he works through this subject of marriage and their, their questions. He doesn't cover it all. He's assuming grace, or he's assuming nature. He's assuming the fall. He's assuming grace. But he's also helping them to see grace does not destroy nature. It perfects it. He's answering their concerns 
assuming that they are products of creation and fall and redemption and that the grace of God has not come to destroy or eradicate their nature as men and women, but to perfect and restore it. Now, if we were going to give a, a, a general overview of the doctrine of marriage, and we wanted to use that same flow of redemptive history, creation, fall, redemption, that would be helpful. I think because we have the whole Bible, our understanding of marriage should probably start before creation in what we call the covenant of redemption. Remember that Jesus once said to His Father in John 17, 6, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me. Which reminds us what we learn from many other texts in Scripture, that from eternity the Father had a people according to the election of grace that He had chosen to be His, and that in an eternal covenant, an eternal agreement within the, the persons of the Trinity, the Father gave these people to the Son to be His. And the Son was then charged with coming and redeeming those people to bring them back to be with Him. The Son was to come and redeem His holy bride and to bring them back to heaven. And again, all this is in eternity. This is before the world began, before time, before creation. The Father says, I'm going to give you, if you wanted to use the language of a bride, the Father says, I have a bride for you, my son. Now you must go and redeem her and bring her back. And we could say that time and creation, the world and humanity, is all the fruit of that. Because the Father said, I'm going to give you a bride, my son, that you must redeem and bring back to our house, I will create. And we see redemption or redemptive history flow from there. And that's important because when we come to Genesis 2, we see Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. In verses 21 and 22, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. We learn here that God's design from the beginning was for one man to come together in marriage with one woman, that they would become one flesh, and that the relationship that they were going to share was going to be exclusive and unbreakable. So where do you get all that? Well, Jesus Himself affirms this in Matthew 19. When He's asked about marriage, this is where He goes. He returns to this very scene. The Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful, for, is it lawful to divorce uh, one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now that's how Jesus read the text. God's design was that one man and one woman come together in a union, and that union be exclusive, and that union be unbreakable. But again, God's good design for man and woman to come together in marriage didn't begin because this man just happened to need a helper 
And God said, oh, this is an interesting turn of events. Well, I guess I better address this now. No, we know it was according to His eternal plan and His eternal decree because He already had Christ and the church in mind. He already had the last Adam in His mind. It began in eternity. So that first marriage was a picture. It was meant to be a picture of the relationship that His Son would have with His people. Christ and the church, in the decree of God, are first. It starts there. It doesn't start with Adam and Eve. It doesn't start with the fall. It starts in the mind and decree of God. And Paul tells us this very clearly in Ephesians 5.32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, he says, it's mysterious, but it's referring back to something that was initiated before the foundation of the world. And then plays itself out in time. Marriage is by God's design to be an illustration of the gospel love that Christ has for His church and the loving submission that the church has for her Savior. And that is true for all human beings. That's not just the Christian view of marriage. It is the Christian view by, by, by special revelation. But we go back to the beginning. This is the reason marriage exists. It is to portray a picture of the gospel. By nature, human beings were designed to be image bearers of God, to come together in marriage, and to procreate and to propagate that gospel picture all over the world. Now when sin enters the picture... This design of God in marriage is not left unaffected. It's actually immediately affected. If I asked you what was the first thing that happened after Adam and Eve sinned, what what would come to your mind? The first thing that happened when sin enters the picture is that they were ashamed. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed and they immediately covered themselves. They made clothing for themselves and covered themselves. Do you think they were hiding from the zebras? No. They were ashamed before one another. All of a sudden, that perfect loving relationship that they had had with one another in, in, w- with no shame, all of a sudden, the only other human being in the world that we know of, according to Scripture, the only other human being, I've got to hide myself from that one. Their, their marriage was, was tainted and corrupted by sin. As God brings the, the curses because of sin... He says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So that blessed union of marriage, we see, is not off limits to the terrible effects of sin. When sin enters the world, it affects, yes, man, but everything that man is a part of, including marriage. The good news is that even in the midst of those curses, God says things that bring hope to all of humanity, which find connection to the continuation of marriage. When he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What he's saying is marriage is going to continue. Procreation is going to continue. There will be marriages and children and marriages and children and marriages and children all the way down until one such seed of a woman will be the savior of the world. So marriage is corrupted, it's touched by sin, but it's not cut off altogether. 
God doesn't say, never mind, scratch that, it's no good. Why? Because the gospel has, is, is what has come in to correct the problem of the fall. And so the type, the picture, must endure, it must continue. Sin is destructive and deadly. But sin did not abrogate marriage. Sin ruined man's nature. But it didn't erase man's nature altogether. Men and women are still to get married, still to have children, still to have families, still to form societies. Why? Because it's natural. That's natural for men. But the reality is, now that sin has entered the world, in a fallen world, a world full of sinners, marriage is hard. It's hard. It's good, but it's hard. Marriage now, is always the joining together of two sinners in holy matrimony. Whether it's two Christians, a Christian and a non-Christian, or two non-Christians, at that altar you're going to have two sinners coming together. And it wouldn't be difficult if we wanted to, to take a journey through the Scriptures and to see how marriage is, is in light of the fall, shown in this light constantly. It's good. It's a blessing. There are benefits, but also it's hard. You're going to need help. There are going to be struggles. There are going to be temptations. God, by His Word, from the very beginning, helps us to think rightly about marriage and to act according to His commandments because when sin comes into the picture, all of a sudden we are, we are tugged in two different directions. Even one of the Ten Commandments is rooted in this concept of marriage. You shall not commit adultery. Marriage is good. Marriage is hard after the fall. There are rules for marriage that we must conduct ourselves by. And God has not left us alone or in the dark. God still speaks even after the fall. He expects us to continue on in these things that are natural. And He says, I'm going I'm to talk you through it. It's going to be tough, but I'm going to talk you through it. Just listen to me. Just do what I say. I'll talk you through the whole thing. As I've said, grace, or the work of God in salvation, doesn't destroy nature. Becoming a Christian doesn't change the fact that marriage is good, that marriage is ordained by God, or that marriage is hard. When grace comes into the picture, that doesn't mean marriage problems go away. It just means now we have the Holy Spirit of God acting within us to sanctify us, to renew us, to perfect us, to someday glorify us, and we have the Word of God to instruct us. Marriage is hard, but God's grace is sufficient. Christ even told Paul, My grace is made perfect in weakness. And anybody who's married will tell you, our weaknesses are probably nowhere seen more clearly than in marriage. You want to see how weak and sinful a person is? Just marry them. You'll get to see, every, you'll get to see it all. And you'll see it in vivid color. We find out just how weak and selfish we are, but grace comes into the picture and says, and Christ says, I'm going to make my grace perfect in that weakness, even in our marriages. The beauty for the Christian is that we've had the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we know the gospel that our marriages are meant to portray. You go to a lost person, you say your marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. They're blind to it. They don't know what you mean. 
But a Christian says, I know that gospel. I know something about that. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, a Christian husband says, I know a little something about that. Not fully, not perfectly, but I've got a little bit of an idea of what that means. When Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, the Christian wife says, I know something about that. Because I've seen what the Scriptures say. Grace doesn't destroy nature. It perfects it. Marriage is hard, but we have the grace of God. That's the current state of things. But as with all types, marriage is a type, a picture of the gospel. As with all types, there is an end to them. Types and shadows are not forever. And the Bible teaches that this type or this shadow that we call marriage will someday give way fully and finally to the anti-type. Revelation 19 verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. John, write this. Blessed are those, blessed are those, who are invited, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. There will be a final Wedding supper. A final wedding party. The church militant will become the church triumphant. The bride for whom our Savior shed His blood. Every last saint will be gathered together to be with Him where He is. And to see His glory. That His, and his prayer will be answered. You know, He prayed, I will that they would be with me where I am to see my glory. That's going to be answered. And Jesus, speaking of that state, says, Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And so we learn that in the glorified state, our good but hard marriages will give way to the fullness of joy that we will share as the redeemed of the Lord. In the eternal state, marriage will be no more. Why? Because its purpose is served. It ran its course. It served its function. The purpose of marriage was to teach us about Christ's love for His church and the church's submission to her Christ. And if, if nothing if nothing else, just to show us how much more glorious Christ is as a husband than we are as husbands. When that day comes, then we'll no, no longer need to look at a picture or type. 
We won't, we won't even need a description written down in Scripture. We won't have to say, hand me a Bible so I can read it and be reminded of Christ's love for me because we will see Him as He is. We will look and see with our eyes and know, not by faith, by sight. We will not have to say, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm believing what you said. No, you'll look and you'll know as you behold His face that He loves you, that He loves us. And so the type will no longer be needed. We'll be living in the fulfillment of it. For some of us, it's hard to imagine. We, we, the reality is, it's hard to believe that entering into a state where my wife is no longer my wife, that my relationship with her will somehow be better. But it will be better. It will be more glorious. Think of all of the strains and the difficulties that come with being with someone you love, your very best friend, and yet knowing their weaknesses and knowing your weaknesses and, and how much of the, the strain that just comes as we bring our sins into that relationship, all of that will be erased and gone. It'll be greater than it is now, not, not worse. Our, our understanding of marriage begins before the world began, enters into time with God's design. It's corrupted by the fall but it is helped and sanctified and perfected through the grace of God and someday it will vanish away. So then a few things that we should know about marriage as we enter 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Marriage is designed by God. It's God's idea. Marriage is good and honorable. Hebrews 13, 14. Marriage is honorable Marriage is to be pursued and encouraged. If you're not married, pursue marriage. If you know somebody who's not married, encourage them to be married. Our, our, our culture has gone the other way, even, even in evangelical culture, has gone the other way. That marriage is, is maybe not a great idea. That maybe 50-50, you might get married, you might not get married. That's hogwash. That's, that's hogwash. God created people and designed people the, the super majority of them to be married, to pursue marriage. And we should encourage that with our children. And when they say, oh, I don't want to get married, say, well, someday you will. Someday you will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep encouraging you to that end. Marriage is good. It's honorable. Marriage exists for procreation, prevention of sin, and mutual help. In addition to being a picture of the gospel, Marriage is between one man and one woman. Anything else is a perversion. Christians should only marry Christians. But I'll go one step further. Christians should marry Christians who are spiritually and morally compatible. The goal is not just find somebody who's a Christian. They need to believe like you and think like you and be prepared to go into life the way you're going. It's hard enough to be married to a Christian who does think like you and, and, and read like you and believe like you, let alone somebody who says, well, I was raised this way. Well, I was raised this way. Well, now what are we going to do? Get out the boxing gloves every day? No. Find a Christian, but marry someone who is spiritually and morally compatible. 
marriage is permanent. Matthew 19, 6, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is not eternal. You'll be married for a while, and then it'll be done. Marriage is not eternal, and therefore marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not the most important thing. Marriage is not the thing that defines us as individuals or who we are. It, is, it, it does not follow to say we should pursue marriage and that it, it should be, I think, assumed and understood and expected that the average human being in the world is going to get married. It does not follow from that, well, what you're saying is that I don't have an identity if I'm not married. No, th those are two separate things. That you, you can, those are mutually exclusive ideas. Marriage, we can still say, is not ultimate. Even though we do say you ought to pursue it and you ought to be expecting for it and preparing yourself for it. It's not ultimate. It's not the most important thing. We're reminded in this chapter, and here I close, married people have to learn how to be married. Married people have to learn how to be married. Widowed people have to learn how to think about life and their future as, a, as having lost their spouse. People who are married to unbelievers, Christians married to unbelievers, they need to know how to live in that situation. And people who are not yet married need to know how to think about single life and marriage. And God has taught us faithfully in His Word. Through Christ, our great prophet, He has, he has said, I'm going to talk you through this. Just stay close, listen to what I say, do what I say, you'll be fine. If you depart from the pattern, if you depart from the Word, God says, you're on your own. That's the direction you're going. But if you'll stay near me, I'll talk you through this whole thing. Does that mean all the problems go away? No. It means that we have God to talk to as we go through our problems. We have His instruction. Let's pray together.